If you were here in October, you would have heard me doing some stuff about uh, money. And if you were here in February, I was looking at sexuality. Today, we are coming to the topic of the meaning, value, and sanctity of human life. I've been working on this book um, for a little while now, um, which had a subtitle, Money, Sex, Power, Violence, and the Meaning of Life. And then my publisher said, oh, no, we really need that as the main title. And somebody said to me, well, the trouble about the meaning of life is it reminds me of Monty Python. And I said, well, so what's the problem with that? Uh, <laughs> um, just a matter of interest, were uh, any of you at either October or February? Oh, good, a number of you. Right, fine. Um, we'll, uh, I've got some of the slides about the method in which I've used in, in both of those before, so we'll be going those for the benefit of those who weren't here. Uh, before, but we'll, we'll move through them a little bit more quickly. <coughs> uh, in February 2012, I was teaching at Otago uh, in uh, Dunedin in New, New Zealand, and um, on the newspaper that, well, that morning, there was this out extraordinary story about the, a couple of philosophers who'd written an article um, and here's the main uh, thing from the Sydney Morning Herald. It was a, a very academic article in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Um, and I was on my way to Melbourne after I left Otago. So I, a couple of days later, I flew into the middle of this row. Um, Monash University is also one of the other universities in Melbourne. And these uh, two philosophers had done an exercise in moral logic. Um, philosophers exist certainly on another planet, probably in orbit around another solar system a lot of the time. Um, and they wrote this very interesting article for the Journal of Medical Ethics, never expecting that anybody would pick it up. Um, but it's an exercise in ethical logic in which they were uh, trying to ask the question, why is uh, abortion before birth possible, but not abortion after birth, which is a a reasonable question to ask. And they said, well, they, their argument went like this very briefly. Firstly, they said that fetuses and newborns are not actual persons. They are morally equivalent. And that, therefore, there's nothing magical about the moment of being born that suddenly converts you into a, a person with moral rights and so on. Uh, they are potential persons. They're going to grow into persons. The fetus and the newborn baby will both equally grow into being a human being, and thus acquire human rights. So that was the start of their argument, was to assert that there was no difference. Secondly, they then said, well, if abortion is permissible pre-birth, um, for um, all sorts of reasons in Australian law, and very similar in British law, for if the, the child is disabled or viewed in some form or other as, and I don't like this word, so I put it in inverted commas, abnormal, or if it would be inconvenient or damaging to the mother's health, ab abortion is permissible. And in uh, severe cases, it's permissible right up to uh, a matter of days before birth uh, in both British law and Australian law. She then said, well, after birth abortion follows in exactly the same way. Why is it not equally permissible in all similar cases? especially if adoption is in a situation where adoption is not being seen as an acceptable alternative. The, so then there was what they were saying is if you discovered that the 
baby has uh, a condition that is legally possible to be aborted for before birth, and then you discover in another case someone who was born with exactly the same condition uh, but didn't, it wasn't picked up before, um, why is what they were calling afterbirth abortion not acceptable, i.e. Uh, you allow the child to die? The one flaw in the, well, no, there were several flaws, but the, the one thing that was picked up quite quickly is that they, they also said, well, they weren't quite sure how long this period of being a potential human being to becoming an actual human being might last. Is it a matter of, oh, you've got, you know, two or three hours to work this out? Um, or could it be days or weeks? And, of course, the phrase afterbirth abortion is another way of saying infanticide, killing of babies. And this was a common method, of course, of contraception throughout the ancient world. If you didn't, like, if the child was the wrong gender or something, they would be exposed on the hillside. Um, I did say that philosophers were naive. One of them got a phone call from an American radio station saying, oh, we've, we've picked up this, we'd like to interview about it. So she thought this was a great idea, went on the interview. And, of course, it was a right-wing Christian uh, sent, uh, broadcasting group in, the, in Texas, and within days, or even a matter of hours, it went viral. Um, the, there were death threats made against these two academics by the pro-life lobby. Now, I, I think that's a really interesting idea that the pro-life lobby goes around making death threats. Uh, it's not at all funny, because um, the Journal of Medical Ethics website crashed. It had never had so many... Uh, postings and comments put on it. Um, it went all over the newspapers uh, around the States and around Australia and even, even in, in the UK. Um, and, uh, of course, unfortunately, the, being a pair of phil philosophers, they put their personal email addresses at the end of the article inviting responses because they said, look, this, is, this looks logical to us. We'd like to, in the academic community, to respond. So their, their personal email boxes got completely bombarded uh, by emails from all over the, the, certainly all over the southern U.S. And in the end, as I, when I arrived in Melbourne, um, they had to have a 24-hour armed guard uh, because of the threats made by the pro-life lobby. So that little story tells us that what we're talking about today actually raises huge emotions. Whatever one makes of the logic of that argument, uh, that in fact it ends up by a pro-life lobby making death threats. Uh, this is the same people that go around and bomb abortion clinics or shoot doctors who do that um, always strikes me as an interesting concept of what it means to be pro-life. Um, and about the same time, this, uh, I think the technical word is meme, but anyway, this um, picture was going and doing the rounds on Facebook and social media and so on. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was uh, executed um, by the Nazis... Um, uh, 75 years ago, uh, about a week ago, uh, for his involvement in the plot against Hitler, a, an extraordinary uh, German pastor throughout the 1930s. But I want to compare that with that. They're exactly the same text. All I've done is write out the text below. But what you see from when you see it as a quotation 
And what you see when you see it as this poster are two very different things. What you see is embryo in very big letters, right, right to live, simple fact, nothing but murder. If you actually go through what Bonhoeffer says, it's quite nuanced. He says here, uh, it's a violation of the right to live which God has bestowed upon the nascent life. Now again, there are all sorts of philosophical and theological assumptions behind what he's saying in the same way that there were for the philosophers. The notion that actually God has bestowed this life, an nascent life, this life that's about to become, uh, so what they were talking about being um, potential. To raise the question of whether we're concerned uh, already with a human being or not is to confuse the issue. Well, that's, of course, precisely the question that the philosophers were, were raising. Uh, the simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being. Um, so one could ask questions, how do you know what God intends? This nascent human being has been deliberately deprived of his life, and that is nothing but murder. But my point at the moment, whether I'm not trying to agree or disagree with either of those cases, it was once again, look at the way was attacked on social media, this, this very strong image. So that's one end of life. Let's go to the other end of life, one of my favorite authors, uh, Sir Terry Pratchett, author of the Discworld novels, um, and a fantastic uh, fantasy writer. Um, and so he's a fellow of King's College London, also that should have been an apostrophe there. Um, because I don't know if, if you know anything about Terry, uh, he contracted Alzheimer's disease and he was incredibly generous in uh, funding a lot of the research that we do at King's College, where I'm dean, into that whole area. And he sadly died on the 12th of March, 2015. He had made, made, said it very clearly, he wanted to die listening to Talis's Spem in Allium playing on his iPod. Now what's quite interesting, and Terry was himself an atheist, but of course Spem in Allium is Talis's 40-part motet, I have no help, other hope, but you, Oh Lord. Um, so that, that too is also, uh, but it is an extremely heavenly, wonderful piece. Um, and uh, Terry himself, of course, wanted to arrange his own death, but that's illegal in this country. Uh, a couple of years before, he made a TV documentary called Choosing to Die. Uh, it went on to win all sorts of awards, the Emmy Award for the Best Documentary in 2012. It profiled the person, well, two people, but mainly one, uh, both suffered from motor neurone disease. Peter Smedley, who uh, was a, a businessman who decided his life was at end, he couldn't cope with his condition any longer, and he went to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland to die. And they, he was filmed being given, as you can see in the picture here, being given uh, the barbiturates with his wife and the doctor and so on present, and talking to Terry Pratchett as he gradually slipped away. Uh, this, uh, I think, was the first time that somebody, well, supposedly the first time somebody dying had been shown on British television, and it provoked quite an enormous uh, debate in the whole area of assisted dying. Once again, in this country, it was very much opposed by the pro-life lobby, and it was interesting that the vast majority of the bishops and the House of Lords uh, were voting against uh, the right of, of dignitas, not all. And so, once again, it raises the question, when does a human being, when does a potential human being become a human being? And when does a human being stop being a human being? Where and when and on what criteria do you draw the line at the beginning and the end of life? And how can we possibly use the New Testament and the Bible in these debates? 
Uh, medical science is an incredible thing, and we're, we're right at the forefront of stem cell research and so on at King's College London. And it produces huge benefits at both ends of life. It also, of course, leads to all these moral quandaries about when do you decide uh, human life begins or ends, or the heart-rending situation that I've sat in a number of times with uh, relatives trying to decide whether to turn off the life support for their loved one. Um, I've quoted a few times Richard Hayes, um, New Testament theologian and expert in uh, New Testament ethics, uh, who is himself uh, anti-abortion. Um, but he does say, the absence of explicit New Testament evidence suggests, first of all, that a certain humility about our claims and conviction concerning abortion is appropriate. If one reads the literature of the American pro-life lobby, you would think that God has nothing else to say in the New Testament except to be against abortion. Uh, where, in fact, uh, at best, there are possibly two verses. There is the story in uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, where Mary, mother of Jesus, goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist is about uh, seven months uh, in the womb at that point. And in the, according to the story, he leaps in the womb when Mary with uh, Jesus, who, of course, are only a few weeks uh, pregnant with Jesus at that point, comes into the room. Um, and then a slightly odd uh, text that Richard goes to in Galatians 5.20, when he talks about the works of the flesh, and it includes idolatry and drunkenness and sexual immorality and so on. And one of the things that's accused is pharmakeia, um, because he gives us the English word pharmacy. Um, and pharmakeia just means potions, um, and there is no suggestion, oh, well, that one of the potions would be something that would cause an abortion. But actually, it was all sorts of potions. I spent a lot of time working in South Africa and very familiar in some of the um, townships. You'll, you'll see the local um, doctor slash medical man slash witch doctor, whatever your language you want to use, with a whole range of jars with colored things in them. And, you know, this one will cure cancer and uh, this one will... Uh, make, make you into a sex stallion or something, and this one uh, will help you if you happen to have a pregnancy which you don't want to have. Um, so there's nothing in the Greek there that indicates it isn't abort about, purely about ab abortifacients. It's not a lot to go on. Interestingly, Hayes doesn't discuss 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, where St. Paul, uh, this is the famous chapter being read a lot at this time of year, Easter, where St. Paul describes the appearances of the risen Jesus to the women at the tomb, to Peter, to a large crowd of 500. And then he says, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And the idea is that one untimely born is born out of season or born late or something, because obviously uh, Jesus' appearances to Paul were several years after those of the others. The word he uses, ectroma, just means something which is thrown, thrown out, pushed out. And it is a word that is used of a miscarriage of a fetus. Um, it is the, the uh, fetal material uh, which is produced in a, in a miscarriage. And what is, why is Paul referring himself to himself like an aborted fetus uh, is one of the really interesting debates that goes on. Is it, does he just mean that he, he, he miscarried, he arrived too late to meet the human Jesus or, or, or what? So I'm just gonna skip through these couple of slides quite quickly. 
Um, the whole point about this course on moral mayhem and methods in our madness is to say that these issues, like money, sexuality, power, violence, the meaning of life, confront us all in our daily life. And many people look towards Jesus in the Bible for help, but the churches, if we're honest, seem in just as much a quandary about it all. Um, I've also suggested, particularly in October, that the Bible says, which is what you get a lot on those American radio and TV stations I was telling you about, is not an answer, and there aren't any quick, easy answers. The Bible is not a book of ethics, or even a book at all. Tab Biblia means, is plural. It means the books, the scriptures. It is plural. There are 66 books in most versions of the Bible, depending on where, and there are quite a lot more if you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox, <coughs> and if you compare the Christian lists with Jewish lists and so on. So it's a whole library of different books written over a thousand years by, in many different literary genres, by different authors, by different cultures. Even if, well, as I happen to believe, it is inspired by God, it still represents the thought of a large different range of human beings. So you cannot call it, treat it as something which is singular, nor can you say it just has one thing to say. It speaks with many voices. And there are these two problems of cultural relativism and contingency. Cultural relativism is about how we bridge the gap. So, as I've said before, when uh, the person on Thought for the Day or says, talks about wandering patriarchs in the desert herding their flocks and their wives and their concubines looking for a place of water, and says, and I thought to myself, isn't that just like you and me? You have to say, well, actually, is it really at all like me? When was the last time you herded your flocks and your wives and your concubines? in search of water. Um, how do we get from the culture of that day to the culture of this day? And how do we know even if they use words like marriage or child or baby or whatever, are those words being used to mean the same things as we mean them today? And secondly, what we call the contingency of issues. So that um, when I walk across Waterloo Bridge from my office on the north bank by the, in the top of the Strand, to visit our research laboratories south of the river, which are doing research into stem cells, to discuss with them the ethics of what, what, what is going on, I find myself thinking about, well, what does the Bible tell me to say? And the Bible tells me very clearly that if I were to meet a Roman legionary, I should carry his pack an extra mile. Now, I'm, I've never yet met a Roman legionary on Waterloo Bridge, but at least I know what I should do if I were to meet one. But sadly, the Bible doesn't tell me what to say to people in our stem cell research labs or what to do about nuclear war. In other words, the first century issues are very different from 21st century issues. So how, how do we use it at all? So I wanted to suggest we can't ask modern ethical questions of an ancient text. But <clears throat> on the other hand, I'm quite keen not to give up on the Bible. I am a professor of biblical interpretation. I don't quite want to put myself out of a job. Um, and large numbers of people do actually still seem to think that the Bible matters. So I'm, one of my arguments is that instead of asking it, what does it say about abortion or stem cell research or nuclear war or um, high executive bonus pay or whatever, you look at basic human needs. What does it say about money? What does it say about sexuality? What does it say about the value of human life? And secondly, Jesus is not an ethical teacher. Uh, there were plenty of those in the ancient world, Socrates or whatever, obviously. But he's all about a wandering preacher who comes preaching the kingdom of God, in his words, uh, and undergirds that with his acceptance of the poor and the marginalized. 
So the New Testament's not a book, not a, not a book of ethics. Uh, the genre of the Gospels is a form of biography, which says we should take Jesus' words and deeds into account and use narrative and stories as well as teaching and his example as well as his instructions. So if that's all true, um, and we're not going to sack me and give up on using the Bible, then how do we actually try to bridge this gap in this uh, area? Um, and this flows from my doctoral research on uh, the what are the Gospels, which argue that the Gospels are in the same genre as ancient biography, ancient lives, and must therefore be interpreted in the same fashion, and they're narratives about a person. And um, it, it's very different from modern uh, examples. Uh, modern uh, examples of biography are often very long, very detailed, and usually of a person who is still alive. Whereas the ancients, it was relatively short, it was more of a portrait than a photograph, and you didn't write a biography of somebody until they had died. Not least because often a quarter or a third of the book would be taken up with their last days or even hours, their last words, because the ancients believed very much that the way in which a person died summed up their life. Um, and, of course, when you look at the Gospels, again, about a, t a quarter or a third of them is taken up with the crucifixion story. Um, and so it's just come out in its 25th anniversary, and there's a few copies on the book side there. Um, but I also then went on to write this little book called Four Gospels, One Jesus, to suggest that there were these four different versions of the story of Jesus kept by the early church. And I was talking about the Bible as a library, as plurality, and used the four symbols of um, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the human face as the four different portraits of Jesus' teaching within the narrative of his deeds. And uh, uh, that's now come out in a classic edition. And, uh, and here am I giving Pope Francis a copy of it uh, because I was awarded the Ratzinger Prize, uh, which is like uh, the major international theology prize for this work. Um, and so I was presenting him with a copy of the books. And I, I really like this because in this very formal ceremony with, with the Pope and everybody and lots of cardinals, as uh, a sort of formal drama you have to go through, the Pope sort of says in a very sort of formal Italian, uh, you know, why the hell are we giving this Church of England priest a prize? Uh, you know, for, for what reason or whatever? And Cardinal Rowini said, for, because I established the indissoluble connection of Jesus and the Gospels, so I do like the idea the Pope gave me an international prize for proving that the Gospels are about Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but but, but um, what I was trying to do was to argue this very much this biographical focus on his words and deeds. Um, this project that I've been lecturing about this year is part of the follow-on to that, taking that biographical genre seriously for New Testament ethics. And I've produced the first volume about this uh, some 10 years ago, and as I've said, I'm working on uh, a second volume, which, uh, please God, will get finished later this summer. What it's time to do is to take Jesus seriously as a preacher or prophet of what we call restoration eschatology. That is the idea that was very prevalent in the first century, that the end of everything was at hand. That's uh, the Greek word eschaton means end and that God was about to restore the world, and in particular restore the kingdom to Israel. And so when he comes in preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying that God's restoration is at hand. 
Um, and he was a, therefore a prophet or a preacher looking to be followed rather than a moral teacher who was sitting around to give you rules and regulations to be obeyed. And it also takes the gospel seriously as ancient biography. It means we don't just extract Jesus' teaching. And there's about equal weight given to his words in his various uh, sermons and, and sayings and stories and parables, but also his practice. Um, and it's interesting that Luke, in the start of the book of Acts, referring to his gospel, says, in the first book I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So it's deeds and words a narrative and inclusive approach. And then I evolved this fourfold method, which we discussed of the two previous lectures, looking at the dragnet, including the narrative, as well as his teaching. And then secondly, how do we get some kind of coherence? And Richard Hayes uses the idea of focal images, which can distort. And we've been getting used to the idea of looking for a best line fit and direction of travel. Thirdly, looking at the four different genres of ethical material, and then fourthly, how it's applied today, with the crucial point of actually having it to a community of interpretation that ensures that the voices of most affected are actually heard. This comes out, I've mentioned before, about the work I did over many years uh, in South Africa, working with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who's a, a patron of King's and one of our famous alumni. And I... It came out of that when I asked people who became my friends. When I was a student activist in the 70s, I never thought I would say that I had Afrikaners as my friends. Uh, how did you end up reading the Bible in this way? And the answer was, well, we didn't listen to the voices who disagreed with us. You know, in other words, if a group of older white male Afrikaners get together in a room and read the Bible and come up with a way of reading the Bible that benefits African white, uh, uh, white male Af as Afrikaner men... Um, that's hardly surprising. And if they'd had people of a different gender or a different color or a different age in the room, they might have come up with a different way of reading it. Now, we won't have time to do section C uh, today, but let's at least try and do the first two and the last one. So the descriptive stage is Jesus's words and deeds. And in each case, I've begun by looking at the social and historical background and the context of, that Jesus would have known, of course, is the Old Testament. And there are lots of verses throughout the Old Testament that talk of the sovereignty of God. God life belongs to God. Um, and the human beings are created in the image of God. Here's the wonderful picture from the Sistine Chapel, um, where we had a very interesting evening with Pope Francis, uh, looking at all the Michelangelo um, paintings. And that life is a gift from God. So if you say, what does the Bible say about abortion... The answer is not very much at best, possibly nothing. Um, if you, certainly if you say, what does it say about stem cell research? Nothing. If you ask, what does it say about life? There's huge amounts. And so that's why I'm, I, I'm going with this topic approach rather than and, and saying in, back in October, what did it say about money rather than what does it say about corporations? And then, there are, of course, there are regular commandments not to kill. But when, well, what, does, uh, what does killing mean? Does that mean that you shouldn't murder? What does that have to say to capital punishment? What does it have to say to war? Um, what does it say to the fact that um, the people who are driving the pro-life lobby in America are also all happily being gun owners and are in favor of capital punishment? Another irony of the 
pro-life lobby. So you simply can't just say abortion is wrong, you shall not kill, or assisted dying is wrong, you shall not kill, if you don't know actually how you're going to define the word kill. Um, and even in British law, we have the idea that people were unlawfully killed, which always slightly worries me because it suggests that there are certain people around the place who have the power to be lawfully killing. So in Jesus' words and teachings, looking particularly at Mark's gospel and what we call the triple tradition appearing in Mark and two other gospels, what's interesting is that this area gives us one of the very rare occasions where you find exactly the same um, uh, saying in all four gospels. The, those who would like to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake or lose their life for the sake of the gospel will find it. This is very significant because it, there are not that many sayings of Jesus, which all four Gospels actually have. It also, if you want to be even the most critical historical researcher, it has the ring of truth about it because Jesus w was always slightly uh, elusive and, and slightly enigmatic and riddling. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you, you, know, you would think that if you want to save your life, that's how to do it, but actually saving life is found by losing it. Uh, and those are the references if, for that. But he also, but some of the other verses that my computer search on the word life or and then trawling my way through the Greek text brought up is that you should cut off what stops you entering life. Um, in other words, if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, uh, chop it off. Um, and yet, when I go to church, there's a stunning shortage of one-eyed, one-handed people. Uh, uh, it, you know, we don't seem to be following that statement uh, literally. Um, or even a more, slightly more bizarre thing that Luke says, that uh, Jesus says that you must, you have, only those who can hate their lives can be his disciples. Now, of course, you might begin to say, well, clearly that's a mark of a very good teacher who's stressing um, uh, the point by saying you've got to put God and his kingdom first and uses the word hate life. doesn't actually mean to hate it. Um, similarly, when, when Luke says you hate your parents and yet it tells you to love your parents and what it meant was to put, uh, God has to take priority over everything, including family ties. So there's this very strong uh, element in the teaching there of the stress on life and if we look at the narrative, Jesus' words and therefore then also his deeds, um, I've, I'm always struck by the particular attitude that he had towards children um, and the way in which the disciples, as you would expect of uh, the sort of followers who are designed to try to make sure that the boss is not bothered too much, the disciples trying to stop mothers bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. And Jesus gets really quite angry with Peter and the disciples for... for, for um, trying to turn the children away. And as I was doing this study, I also noticed that it is in this context of life and death and pain and suffering that we get the most in, uh, frequent and interesting references to Jesus' emotions. He gets really angry. When, when did Jesus get angry? Obviously he got angry with the money changes in the temple. But the rest of the time he gets angry with disease, suffering and death. And the text often says that he rebuked it, using exactly the same word as him rebuking an evil spirit or an unclean spirit. There is something about things that are against life that got Jesus really angry. 
And, of course, what got him into trouble was he said that saving life was more important than anything else, including on the Sabbath. So that's why he was prepared to heal on the Sabbath um, uh, and, and putting people's needs first. There's also an interesting uh, thing when you look at his quite a few stories about his approach to the dead or the, or the dying. Um, he really enters into sorrow and mourning. Uh, he goes to try to help the synagogue leader, Jairus, whose little daughter is dying. But on the way, he stops to heal a woman who is constantly hemorrhaging. She's constantly menstruating and therefore unclean and therefore not able to go to synagogue. And while he's helping that lady, Jairus' daughter seems to die. Um, and if I was Jairus, I would say, look, Jesus, it's all very well, but she's been, that woman's been like that for a long time. You can come back and sort her out later. How about doing my daughter first? You know? um, and then, of course, he goes and says, no, 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 she's not dead. She's asleep and, and brings her back to life. Or there's the story of uh, as he's entering the city of Nain and they will meet a funeral procession that's on the way out. And it's a widow uh, leading the funeral procession with her, the, the coffin of her only son. And he has tremendous compassion upon the woman um, and uh, raises uh, back to life her son. Um, I have to say, all the time I've been working with a funeral director, I don't know that they would have taken kindly to me doing, doing that. <laughs> but um, the whole point was obviously with this woman being a widow, she had no husband to support her. It, and without the social services and the welfare net, her only ways of support would have been her son. And to lose her son is to lose everything. And of course, the famous story of the death and raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. The one life that Jesus does not seem to be at all bothered about is, is his own. He talks regularly about giving up his life uh, as a ransom for many or as life for others. So let's try and sum that up. Uh, in the previous sessions, please, there are spaces at the front. Do, do, oh, okay. Um, as, as we've been looking for this idea of the best line fit based upon the French-Canadian um, Jesuit Guillemet, Jesus does not give directives, but rather a direction. And we've got the image there of the Milky Way. And the idea of using data to plot the general direction or general trend uh, being established, like discerning the Milky Way in the night sky. And if we look at Jesus' words as a whole, there's a strong stress on and for life. God is the source of life. God is the goal of life, the beginning of life, the end of life. And this life is to be lived for God. And that's undergirded by this narrative of Jesus living out his teaching in confronting disease and death uh, with life, constantly healing, constantly helping people in pain and suffering. Uh, giving people life. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, as one of his sayings. And yet, at the same time, he is willing to suffer and lay down his own life. If we then turn to what we call the double tradition, things that are in Matthew and Luke but not in uh, Mark, uh, there's the wonderful saying in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, don't get worried about your life, you know, uh, you, worrying isn't actually going to help feed you or clothe you or, or anything. 
there's a great stress in Jesus' teaching about the idea of rendering accounts. Lots of stories and parables about people who've been given things who then have to account for it to their manager or, or, or whatever. Perhaps the most famous of which is the parable of the talents, hence this little picture here of the three guys. Uh, in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, the first who has ten talents and makes another ten talents, the one who has five and makes another five, and the person at the back of the queue who just buried the talent, the talent being a weight of silver. Uh, it's become, obviously, the English word talent meaning how you play the piano and so on, but it was a, it was a measurement of wealth. And in Matthew, uh, I talked earlier about what does the commandment thou shalt not kill mean, uh, and he intensifies it, and he's very clear, he uses the phrase to not murder, but says it's not good enough not to murder. You must also not have anger, because to have anger is, is, to, is to break that commandment. And one of the other things he comes up with life is that it, there is a narrow gate that leads to life, which few find, whereas, of course, there is the broad way that leads to destruction, which many find. Luke is particularly interested in women and children. Um, he, the whole story begins with enormous sorrow, a situation of childlessness. And this is a regular thing throughout the Old Testament. Just think of Abraham and Sarah or Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So many stories of childless women because in that culture, if you were childless, it was obviously couldn't have to be the woman's fault. It couldn't possibly be the man's fault, obviously. Um, uh, and and uh, the, this was a reason for um, getting rid of your wife or, or whatever. So there's this pious couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who don't have a child. And then when the angel appears to uh, Zechariah and um, they have a child, there's great joy at that birth. Um, and I've already referred to the way in which the story of the John the Baptist leaping in the womb is mentioned, and it is used by Pope John Paul II in the, the papal encyclical, the Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, section 45, to say, ah, look, because John the Baptist was leaping in the womb of Elizabeth, that means that all fetuses are by that fact conscious and human beings and in contact with God and therefore cannot be aborted. Now, uh, let, let, we, we can argue about the logic of whether that all fol follows, but it, it's a great stress made on the use of that. Often accompanied by pictures like this, which say, you want to tell me that's not a human being? And, and so they're linked often to Old Testament uh, passages about fetal life. And Jeremiah and the Psalms and Isaiah, before I formed you in the womb, says the Lord, I knew you, and I prepared life for you. And so they would, those texts are then used to say, ah, oh, well, if you go around aborting children, uh, then you're destroying God's plans. But actually, those texts do not say anything about fetal life in general. What they say, um, sorry, I'll just come back to that in a minute, is that God knew that Jeremiah was going to turn into being a prophet or uh, Isaiah was going to turn into being a, a, a servant and so on. Not necessarily that, that, that there's a programmed plan, as it were, for every, every um, uh, fetus in the womb, not least of which is the fact that uh, we, even with all our research at Kings, we're not sure, but a large proportion, possibly 40 or 50 percent of fertilized fetuses never actually make it to term and um, fail to implant or miscarry very early on before the woman even realizes she's pregnant. And 
in Luke, we also get the idea at the end of life, you remember the story of the rich man who is making so much money he has to keep pulling down uh, his banks and building bigger banks, um, or barns as they were called in those days. Um, and then God says, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. Um, in John, life is one of the key words that he uses all the time. In him was life. There is a life that's eternal, connected to the life of God, connected to the reaction to Jesus. And because God the Father raises the dead and gives life and has the power of judgment of life and death, so too does the Son. And throughout the gospel, Jesus is the source of the means of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection of life. I have come to give life in all its fullness. <clears throat> and in the narrative, of course, we get the story in John of Jesus wanting to lay down his life for others. And he's very clear in John chapter 10 that, it, that nobody's going to take his life away from him. He does it willingly. We see in a slightly idealized picture here of uh, Jesus' own grief at the death of Lazarus, trying to comfort Mary and Martha, and then uh, bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. The way he comforts Mary Magdalene in the garden when she thinks he's the gardener um, on the morning of the resurrection. And then in the book of Acts, God is regularly described as the author of life. Um, and that when Paul is preaching in Athens, he doesn't, talking to the Greeks, there's no point in telling them all about the Old Testament, he quotes their own poets, that it is in him we live and move and have our being. That, that's Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher. Um, that it is God who gives life and breath to all. And what Paul says regularly throughout Acts is that what they're doing is offering life to the Gentiles. And in Paul's writing in particular, I've already picked up Richard Hayes's use of pharmacaea, pharmacies as a work of the flesh, which might be about abortifacients, but more likely means magical drugs and potions generally. It is God who gives life to death and God who calls things into being which did not exist in Romans 4. And of course, the great classic chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? It is the Christ who has destroyed death. Um, and then this uh, wonderful medieval woodcut of the sort of death and the serpent and so on all are being trampled underfoot. So life, and particularly eternal life, is linked to Jesus. Paul was constantly saying that actually we enter into new life now, in the here and now, in Romans 6 and Romans 8. Uh, he says it's not he who's actually living. The life that he lives in the body, in the flesh, is through Jesus. And he manifests the life of Jesus in his body. And what Paul's really interested about, and this echoes Jesus' own lack of concern for his own life, that Paul is more interested about Christ being exalted, whether that's by his life or by his death. To live is Christ, to die is even better, to die is gain. And he, he writes quite movingly um, from uh, a prison cell of his desire to leave his body uh, and this life behind and go and be with Christ, but he's conscious that God is calling him to work at, um, at the moment for those who he's serving. And so whether we live or whether we die, we live or we die to Christ, he says. And that therefore you're, we don't even own our own bodies. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It was bought with the price of the blood of God and is to be glorified in our body. 
And Paul talks a lot about his own sufferings, being beaten and shipwrecked and hungry and so on. So while both Jesus and Paul are very committed to the relief of suffering, they both cause themselves tremendous suffering in order to do it. And then lastly, uh, the rest of the New Testament talks about the crown of life. I found this rather wonderful picture on an American uh, website of Jesus bestowing the crown of life, um, uh, as in James 1-2. And once again, the same idea that it's God who gives life to all, the life that is really life. And in the letters of John, as you'd expect, there's a lot more about life there. And the way we know we have passed from death to life is if we love one another, and we should follow Jesus' self-sacrificial model of laying down our lives for others. And finally, the book of Revelation uh, is full of these phrases of life, the tree of life, the crown of life, the book of life, the water of life, and the way to life is being faithful even to death. So let's try and sum this up. There's the same trajectory running on into the rest of the New Testament from Jesus' words or deeds that actually goes back into the Old Testament. This theology, this understanding that God is the source, ground, and goal of all of life. That the concern is for human beings to live life in all of its fullness and an opposition to all that detracts from life, whether that's sin, sickness, suffering, evil, and supremely death. But this life here on earth is not the be-all and end-all of everything. It's not the end in itself. And it may need to be sacrificed for the sake of eternal life in God to being faithful even to death. So there's this clear direction from Jesus that life is lived in the light of the kingdom and everything's sacrificed for that. And this is undergood, not throughout, just throughout his teaching, but also in his actions, his concern for those who suffer, for children, his anger at disease and death, his healing and liberating ministry and yet his own complete acceptance of suffering and death. And that this gets amplified in Gospels, Luke, Luke's Gospel, particularly with his concern for children, and amplified by John in his Gospel with his meaning of, treatment of the meaning of life, and in Paul's anthropology, Paul's way of looking at what it means to be a human being as living in Christ. And that the rest of the New Testament consistently sees God as the author of life and being faithful to death. There are very few direct commands, and even the ones that are there, we don't necessarily keep. I've already talked about cutting off what uh, prevents you entering into life. There are lots of principles about God as the source of life, the body as the temple of the spirit, the concern for the least of the woman. The only examples that we have of uh, babies in the womb are John the Baptist and Jesus. Um, there is anger at Herod's destruction and killing of all the babies in Bethlehem, and the dragon that devours babies in the vision of Revelation chapter 12. So there's a clear overall theology in favor of life, and that tradition has been followed by the church uh, over the last 2,000 years in its tradition of handling of care for the suffering, the origin of hospices, hospitals, relief of needs, and so on. So I find it curious that the acid test of biblical orthodoxy in this area today is more about opposition to abortion or stem cell research or assisted dying or euthanasia, rather than this whole wider look at uh, the Christian desire for life and the relief of suffering. So we're arguing that you, they give us a direction, like Gilemet, back to our Milky Way. The direction is to take up the cross, to deny yourself and follow him, which is costly. 
This provides us with some content, but not all the answers. And Jesus in the New Testament is more concerned, a lot more text, about money and violence and power uh, than about sex, marriage, divorce, or the beginning and ends of life. So the question is, does the church and the Christian tradition follow God's priorities in the New Testament and the Bible and the overriding biblical ethic of love in Jesus' example? And I've argued that we should try to have a mix and inclusive community to discuss the questions around the table. Now, I suggested that, therefore, if you're going to try to understand what the Bible says about money, you will need to have the climate change protesters from the, um, in the Extinction uh, Rebellion and bankers in around the same table. Equally here, it's very important that we keep uh, together uh, the childless, those who have handicapped children, the scientists and the researchers, um, and the huge advances that are being tried to make people who can't have children to be able to have children or those who have genetic diseases to be able to heal that. So how do we build a community that responds to the ethical challenge and yet is open to the affected outsiders? And are we friends of sinners or are we judgmental excluders? And I would like to suggest that making death threats against those philosophers, for instance, on behalf of the pro-life lobby, whatever you thought about their argument does not really come under the, the biblical ethic of love. But we have to recognize, as Richard Hayes did, that there is a lack of clear proof text. There is no text that says thou shalt not commit abortion. There is no text that says thou shalt not go to Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland. Um, there's more reason, therefore, to look for a community response and try to work out what this vast amount of material with a very positive attitude towards life has to say to the issues that are facing us in the 21st century, which are very different issues from those who were written of his own day. How can we understand the Bible? How can we do exegesis and interpret it through hermeneutics without vilification or threats of violence and listening to the voices of those who are affected, particularly those who are outside uh, the, the, the church or the Christian tradition on all sides? And also taking some responsibility for the cost of the decision. Uh, if, for instance... Uh, you're in a community or a church that is very strongly against abortion, will you help adopt and raise the unwanted children? If one is opposed to any form of assisted dying, what does that say about our care, uh, particularly for the terminally ill or the elderly? So there's vast numbers of questions. Uh, the, new, the Bible is clearly in favour of life. What that gives us then is the questions of value and meaning. It's much bigger than just abortion or euthanasia, and here is obviously uh, a picture of a sperm and an egg. Um, with the huge advances in infertility treatment, egg and sperm donation, and now third-party involvement, so you, you can have people who are biologically parents, or sociologically parents, or genetically parents. And the work of stem cell research, and King's is one of the two major places in the UK, we're doing research on live stem cells, uh, mapping of the human genome and so on, which leading to all sorts of possibilities for new cures. And yet at the same time we have to be careful um, that some of the so-called pro-life lobby don't want to come and uh, leave unwanted packages at the door of our research laboratories, for instance. And then at the other end of life, this sort of scene outside the Royal Courts of Justice across from my office in King's is very regular. 
we have all the medical invention, interventions in infertility and gene therapy in early life, but also what do we do about the fact that medical research now means we can prolong medical treatment of the elderly and the terminally ill and artificially keeping people alive who naturally would have died and in many cases who want to die. Hence uh, Terry Pratchett's argument about assisted dying. What is the relationship between uh, assisted dying and suicide? If a person can't actually take their own life, can you give them barbiturates as in that documentary? What is the relationship between killing and simply letting die? The net result is the same. Um, the person dies, but when one, one is active in killing them, giving them drugs or whatever, the other is that one merely lets them die. And how does that all relate to murder? And I'm just raising the, the final point about consistency, particularly because of my, you will have got some of that, that I'm not necessarily the strongest supporter in the world of some of the tactics of the pro-life lobby. Um, how, if you are going to be pro-life, you have to be pro-life right across the board. And that means things like capital punishment, the police and armed forces, and gun control. So, what I've tried to do through these three lectures is to say there's a recognition of the overall coherence of Jesus' teaching and example. And in particularly in the area of money and sexuality and divorce, how little of it the church has actually put into practice down through history. And I would say the same if we'd had time to do um, the, the, the thing on violence and war. In the life question, actually, this is one thing where I think the Christian tradition has done a huge amount to be pro-life through uh, the medical missionaries, through hospital movements, and so on. So I find myself asking the question, why have certain hot-button issues, particularly ones that not the Bible doesn't actually say very much about, like homosexuality or abortion, become the acid test of biblical orthodoxy, so as it's so-called, when much larger and clearer areas, such as the use of money or the approach to marriage and divorce or nonviolence, are not obeyed or followed to the letter. I've also given you a fourfold method to try to provide you with some ethical material to work with, despite the fact that Jesus is not a moral teacher and the New Testament is not an ethical book, as I point out, but it can help us to grapple with New Testament ethics. And then the final question, really, of how do we actually try to form inclusive communities of interpretation in real-life churches and congregations and places like Gresham College to do really comprehensive study of what the Bible is talking about, which allows for the voices of uh, others, outsiders or whatever, to be heard. Thank you very much.